Good morning, church. This is it. Easter Sunday, Victory Day. This is what it's all about. Uh, Easter Sunday. Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, and he rose again on Easter Sunday. It's the whole reason we exist as a body of believers, as, as followers of Jesus. This is what it's all about, Easter Sunday. And again, it's too bad we can't be together, but let's do that thing where uh, one of us says, he is risen, and everybody else responds, he is risen indeed. From the comforts of your home, all lead, he is risen, he is risen indeed. It's, it's a beautiful thing, and we're so glad that you're here uh, virtually online. You're here with us, that we can celebrate together Jesus' resurrection and the new life that he affords to us because of his return to life. So we're going to sing a couple of Easter songs. We're going to sing, Oh, Praise the Name, Anastasis, which is a song of victory, of, of praise to the one who rose again. And later, after the sermon, we're going to sing Stronger, which fits in really well with Easter. He is stronger. He conquered death and actually fits in really beautifully with the theme of the sermon as well. So I was going to say, would you stand? But uh, you can do whatever you want in your pajamas in your living room. But we're going to sing, uh, Oh, Praise the Name. Would you join us? Bye. 
So as I mentioned, today's message is an Easter message because today's passage is a version of the Easter story. The thing is, at first glance, it doesn't look anything like an Easter story. There's no happy little bunnies or adorable baby chicks. There's no colorful eggs or cream-filled chocolates. There's no straw-lined baskets or Sunday bonnets. In fact, never mind any of those cultural images of Easter and springtime. Our Easter story this morning doesn't even have Jesus in it. No gruesome crucifix, no gobsmack centurions, no great commissions, no proclaiming Mary, no doubting Thomas, no redeemed Peter, no rolled stones or empty tombs, and most significantly of all, not even one resurrected rabbi. None of that is found in our passage today, as we continue to make our way through the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel. And yet, in First Samuel 5, we have a beautiful and powerful demonstration of the message of Easter. The details are completely different. As I reread the passage, you're going to think that it's the biggest stretch of all time, linking these two very different biblical accounts. At first glance, they have nothing in common except a couple background features. But it's those features that are really the foreground features that we're going to focus on this Easter morning. And in the end, I hope we all have a deeper love and respect for the supreme God who conquers his enemies when all seems lost. This is an Easter story. You'll just have to trust me. But first, a recap. This sermon is the third of a three-part examination of what's known as the Ark narrative, found in 1 Samuel 4-6. to Two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 4, when Israel went to battle against the hated Philistines and lost, despite having the Ark of the Covenant, a golden box that functioned as the holy throne of their Almighty God. They thought that merely parading the Ark into battle would manipulate God into granting them victory, as they had experienced in the past. Uh-uh. God don't like no arrogance, and he cannot be conjured like a magic incantation. Many Israelites were slaughtered, the high priest and his sons all died, and worst of all, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by their oppressive neighbors, the Philistines. God had seemingly abandoned his people. Israel's national grief is captured by the name of a baby boy born in the midst of the chaos at the end of chapter 4, and his name was Ichabod, a name that means, where is the glory, or there is no glory. The glory has departed, or so they thought. Last week, we read chapter 5, but we focused on chapter 6, as the ark returns with glory and rejoicing back to Israel. We connected that story with the New Testament account of the triumphal entry, when Jesus entered Jerusalem a week before his death, celebrated like a victorious king. Both feature the peaceful king's humble arrival on a modest beast of burden. Uh, In 1 Samuel 6, God's ark arrives on a cart pulled by some cows, In the triumphal entry, Jesus arrives with a donkey and its baby. And in both stories, the crowd recognizes the event as a time of praise and joy and hope. Everyone around is drawn to the ark, and everyone around is drawn to Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. But both 1 Samuel 6 and the triumphal entry give us a vivid reminder of the holy, untamable, sovereign nature of the God in the center of the story. In the Old Testament, he wipes out his own people for disrespecting the ark. And in the New Testament, Jesus' first acts upon entering David's holy city are to curse a fig tree, purify the temple in a table-tossing display of justice, and predict his imminent death. Portraits of wild, righteous divinity. But as you can tell, we skipped a chapter. We put the cart before the cow, so to speak, to paraphrase the image of 1 Samuel 6. We read chapter 5, but didn't really examine it. Well, we're going to reread it today and dig in like it's a fresh-baked Easter ham. Because as I've already mentioned, today is Easter, and 1 Samuel 5 is an Easter story, even when it doesn't really sound like one. The ark has been captured, and God's glory has departed his people Israel. Soon he will return, more triumphant than ever, 
But for now, Yahweh is assumed to be kidnapped by the Philistines. Their god, Dagon, has given them victory over the one true god. How will the one true god respond from the hopeless clutches of the enemy? What happens when God's glory dies and evil is victorious? Grab your Bibles and follow along at home as we read the Easter story of 1 Samuel 5. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer, which is in Israel, to Ashdod, which is in Philistia. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the Ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. And that, kids, is the story of Easter. Enjoy your chocolates and have a great week, everyone. Well, okay, so the connection is far from obvious at surface level, but we ain't about to stay at surface level, are we? We're going to dig deeper. By the end of the previous chapter, chapter 4, Yahweh appeared weak and submissive, while Dagon, god of the Philistines, appeared to have prevailed in his strength. It's interesting. One author I really love and have learned a lot from, his name is Peter Enns, says that ancient Israel wasn't monotheistic as we all think they were. Mono meaning one, theistic meaning God-believers. The, the monotheistic religions of our world are Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They, they believe in one God, but Peter Enns says that ancient Israel wasn't monotheistic. They were monolatrous, meaning they only worshipped one God, but they didn't believe in only one God. They believed in the existence of many gods. They simply believed that their God was supreme over all those other false gods, but they didn't doubt that those false gods existed somehow. To them, the enemy was real, and the enemy was powerful, and the enemy had taken their God captive deep in the black heart of its foul dwelling place, the Temple of Dagon. Dagon was victorious. The glory was gone. It had abandoned his people. And so the Philistines set the ark beside Dagon, which would make Israel's God appear submissive and subservient to the Philistine God. The ark was said to be the footstool of the Almighty. Now it is serving as the footstool for a stone idol. There's a whole lot of arrogance, even blasphemy, on the part of the Philistines. They believe, like the Israelites, that possession of the ark means possession of God himself, like a genie in a lamp. 
But God is not chained to his throne. He is free and he is sovereign and he is not about to bow to any idol or serve as some false god's footstool. No chance. Instead, the tables get turned in a massive way. Here's the first connection between this story and the Easter story, and it's a very minor one. After capturing the ark and bringing it into the darkness of their temple, verse 3 states that the people of Ashdod rose early the next day and headed off to Dagon's temple to revel in their victory. Instead, they find a collapsed idol. In the Easter story, we have a mirror image of that. There, in the Easter story, it's the faithful female disciples of Jesus who rise early in the morning and head off to Jesus' burial place to mourn over a corpse. But no corpse is to be found. The Philistines expected celebration, but were instead confronted with a dreadful sight. Dagon had fallen. Conversely, Mary Magdalene expected a dreadful sight, but is instead greeted with a celebration. Jesus has risen. It's a beautiful twist. And don't worry, the connections between the two stories only get better from here. But the Philistines expected the Ark to bow before Dagon. But they find the exact opposite. Dagon is literally bowing on his face before the Ark. So they hoist Dagon back up into his stony storage spot. They check for maybe there's a breeze that blew him over, or maybe evidence of a late-night vandal. They cast a sideways glance at Israel's golden box, and they leave for the evening. And when they return the next morning... Things have gotten much worse for Dagon, in the same way that Israel's second battle against the Philistines in chapter 4 went much worse for them than the first failed battle. This time, when the people of Ashdod scramble into the temple, they have to step over his decapitated stone head and his severed stone hands. I'm sure they guarded the temple closely, monitoring against any further funny business, and still their god lies shattered at the feet of Yahweh. There is no doubt who has the power in the battle between God and the enemies of his people. No doubt at all. It's a knockout blow. And there is a whole ton of significance to Dagon's shattered head and hands. The head is for thinking, and the hands are for doing. Dagon is merely stone. He does neither thinking nor doing. Even if the Israelites, like the Philistines, had a passing belief that Dagon might be real, God sets the record straight. Old Daggy is about as real as the Easter Bunny. His head could never formulate a plan or a sovereign will or a guideline for right living, and his hands could never conjure or create out of nothingness or dole out mercy or justice on his subjects. Why? Because he's merely a carved rock. His head and his hands are useless and powerless. So God rolls up his sleeves and says, let me show you a thing or two about the existence of almighty deities, and then literally dismantles Dagon right there in his own temple. So much for home field advantage. But the symbolism of the idol's dismembered parts goes deeper than just highlighting Dagon's powerlessness in the face of Yahweh. The fact that his hands have been removed is significant for another reason as well. If we look at the entire Ark narrative, chapters 4, 5, and 6 of 1 Samuel, we find the word hand appearing 10 different times. That's a lot. It's really subtle and it's easy to miss, but it's there. In chapter 4, the Israelites declare their plan for manipulating God into victory by stating, Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Later, upon seeing the Ark of the Covenant being brought into battle, the Philistines are filled with terror and they cry out, We're doomed! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? 
And then they add a little extra about the Exodus, worrying that in the ark are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness, as it says in verse 8. Oh, they're getting plagues all right, the Philistines. They're getting their tumors and their rats. But they connect the hand of God to the Exodus. Later, in chapter 6, which we looked at last week, it's the Philistines' turn to plot what to do with the ark, as the Israelites had done in chapter 4. The priests of Dagon tell the rest of the Philistines in 6 verse 3, that if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. When the rest of the Philistines ask what guilt offering they should give, the priests tell them five gold rats, five gold tumors, and add, perhaps then he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. And then, as they had two chapters earlier, the Philistines draw our attention back to the Exodus by saying in the very next verse, Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? Later, the Philistines test God by using the mother cows to pull the ark to see if the cows will head to Israel or return to their babies. They decide that if the cows do return to their calves, Yahweh will have been disproved and the Philistines will know, as it says in 6.9, that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. In other words, the entire narrative is bookended by two very different people groups, the Israelites and Philistines, plotting what to do with the Ark of the Covenant, while the Philistines keep calling to mind the Exodus. And throughout the whole thing, they keep talking about hands, hands, hands. Hands are even falling off the local idols, for goodness sake. So what's the deal? Why all the handy chatter? Well, since the Philistines and the authors of 1 Samuel keep inviting us to consider the Exodus, why don't we consider the Exodus? The book of Exodus features the word hand about 98 times in the NIV. I say about 98 times because I counted each one and was not going to recount them if I missed one or two. Some of those references to hands are benign, like, for instance, the newly formed priests are to wash their hands before serving. They are to measure things by the hand breadth. Artisans create items for the tabernacle with their skilled hands. So those have nothing to do with what we're talking about today. But the vast majority of those 98 references to hands in the book of Exodus are loaded with one distinct meaning, a meaning that seeps into the arc narrative of 1 Samuel 4-6, and a meaning that seeps into Easter time. The first time hand is found in Exodus, it's God speaking from the burning bush, telling Moses that he has come down to rescue his people from the hand of the Egyptians. That's Exodus 3, verse 8. In that same conversation, 11 verses later, Yahweh declares that he knows the king of Egypt will not let the Hebrew people go unless a mighty hand compels him. So, God promises, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. When Moses doubts his ability to carry out his role as deliverer and asks for proof, God asks Moses, hey, what's that in your hand. Turns out it's a shepherd's staff, which God turns into a snake, then instructs Moses in 4.4 to reach out his hand and take it by the tail, as it turns back into a staff. And the very next miraculous sign that God gives Moses is to tell Moses to put a certain body part into his cloak. I'll give you 20,000 points if you could guess what part of the body God tells Moses to hide in his cloak. No, Barry, not his ankles, his hand. Haven't you been paying attention, Barry? So Moses puts his hand in his cloak, and when he pulls it out, it's all white and leprous, which God then heals again. 
all of the proof God needs to give Moses revolves around Moses' hands. As the story continues, Moses and Pharaoh battle each other over the freedom of God's people. Whose hands will prove more powerful, the hand of Pharaoh or the hand of Yahweh? Chapters 6 and 7 include these powerful proclamations from Israel's God. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as a possession. I am the Lord. And that's chapter 6, verses 1 and 8. The next chapter, it says, Pharaoh will not listen to you, Moses, so I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. That's chapter 7, verses 4 to 5. Whenever God empowered Moses or Aaron, it was through their hands. They lifted their hands, and plagues came. They lifted their hands, and the waters of the Red Sea split. Then they lifted them again, and the sea came crashing down on the heads of the Egyptians. When Moses stretched out his hands, destruction came to the enemies of God's people. There's even a battle against the Amalekites in Exodus 17, where as long as Moses held out his hands, the battle would go Israel's way. But if his arms got tired and started dropping, the Israelites would start to lose. They had to prop a stone under his arm so his hands could remain steady until the battle was won at sunset. All of this is summed up numerous times throughout the story of the Exodus, often directly by God himself in this way. With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God's people are trapped in servitude. They're trapped by a merciless oppressor and have no hope of release from their bondage until God gets to work. With his mighty hands, human kings like Pharaoh and powerless gods like Dagon are thrown down and bow at his feet. With his mighty hands, he unshackles his people's chains and dismantles their enemies. With his mighty hands, he gives freedom and grace and life. With his mighty hands, our God secures the victory over our greatest enemies. Nothing can stand in his way. The Egyptians found this out with the Exodus. The Philistines found this out with the Ark of the Covenant. Four times it declares in 1 Samuel chapter 5 that the Lord's hands were heavy against, and then it mentions the Philistine people, or their idol Dagon, or the city Ashdod, until the penultimate verse of chapter 5 simply states, Death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. His hands are powerful. His hands are active. And his hands tear down those who ensnare and abuse and oppress others. Those who flaunt his holy things and claim they have tamed Almighty God. With a mighty hand, God's glory returns to his people. With a mighty hand, the Lord drags us out of our pitiful slavery. With a mighty hand, our freedom and our lives are given back to us when all hope had been lost. And that right there is what makes 1 Samuel 5 an Easter story. At the beginning of chapter 5, God is humiliated and the enemy is exalted. And doesn't that sound like Jesus? But by the third day, the tables have turned dramatically. The enemy, Dagon, is humiliated and God is exalted. There's a lot of death in the Ark narrative, but no one is ever quite as dead as Dagon because Dagon was powerless and lifeless in the first place. So God takes over the arena of his supposed defeat. Dagon's temple becomes the focal point of God's sovereign strength. That is such a powerful portrait of what happened to Jesus Christ on Easter weekend. 
Jesus, who had saved so many others, apparently couldn't even save himself, according to the mockers gathered around the cross. He was supposed to be the Messiah, whose kingdom in Israel and throne in Jerusalem would never end. And there he was, pitiful, nailed to a cross, bleeding and suffocating, and ultimately dying. Jesus had been humiliated by his enemies, both Jew and Gentile alike, very much like the Ark in the presence of Dagon. Jesus died a criminal's death, the lowest anyone could experience. And he was tossed into a grave that wasn't even his, leaving behind some arrogantly satisfied rivals, some callously indifferent townsfolk, and a small group of deeply guilt-ridden, deeply lost, and deeply confused followers. Like the ark, Jesus was buried deep in the cold heart of enemy territory. Jesus was wrapped and laid to rest in a tomb. The ark was placed as a footstool for Dagon. At Easter time, it seemed like the enemy had won, but not a human enemy like the Pharaoh or Philistines or Pharisees or phalanx of Roman guards. Those are merely misguided humans. They aren't the real enemy. Rather, the victory seemed to belong to the common enemy of all humanity, death. Life and light had been snuffed out. Death had beaten the Son of God. Sin was triumphant. Jesus, like Moses, had stretched out his hands. But this time, with hands outstretched, Jesus had nails pounded through them so he could be subjected to the cruel coldness of death itself. It sure didn't look like power in those hands. It looked like weakness. It looked like defeat. Jesus looked like the ark, a beautiful golden box filled with God's glory, sitting helplessly on the altar, a footstool for lesser gods. That's what Jesus looked like. God himself turned into a footstool for death. But death had better go check with the Egyptians and the Philistines and see what happens when God and his people seem to be hopelessly defeated. In 1 Samuel 5, the Philistines are chased from city to city and the hand of God's righteous judgment falls heavy on each one. Not even death can escape that same treatment. Like Dagon, death is left without head or hands in the presence of Jesus. It has no authority. It has no power. Like all enemies of God's people, sin and death are humiliated and subverted by the sovereign strength of Jesus. The Israelites thought Dagon was real, and they feared he had robbed them of God's glory. Well, death is real, but it's just as powerless as Dagon to stop Jesus from crushing it. For God's people, life wins. Love is victorious. His glory is not gone, it's here, and it's ours to participate in. I mentioned earlier that when Moses stretched out his hands, destruction came to the enemies of God's people. Well, when Jesus had his hands forcibly stretched and pierced with nails, destruction came to our enemies as well. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? In the same way Jesus had been mocked on the cross, Paul is mocking death. Where's your power? Where's your victory? Where's your sting? You've got nothing, death. Jesus had taken the hands and head off of death, leaving it toothless and powerless. And he did it in death's home court. After all, the empty tomb is just as much a symbol of our faith as the cross. Jesus entered that tomb, the domain of death, in weakness but he emerged in power. Be encouraged. Death does not get the final say because its mouth is removed with its head. And death does not get the final act because death had its hands removed in God's presence. Jesus has made death into his footstool. At the beginning of the sermon, I posed a question. 
What happens when God's glory dies and evil is victorious? Well, the answer in 1 Samuel 5 and the answer at Easter are the same. When God's glory dies and evil seems victorious, well, then glory returns stronger than ever and evil gets dismembered. Jesus' resurrected life has conquered death and like the ark returning to Israel, he shares the triumph with all of us. He is a wild God, beholden to no one, free to carry out his will, but his will is to deliver us from our enemies. Jesus' powerful hands have completely shattered the shackles of our slavery to sin, our slavery to self, and our slavery to suffering. Jesus has utterly dismantled our enemies, like Dagon on the floor of his own temple, and now we're free to love and serve our God because of our humble Prince of Peace. I mentioned earlier there is no doubt who holds the power in the battle between God and the enemies of his people. God will win every time, no matter how dark and hopeless it seems. Which means God's people will win every time, no matter how dark and hopeless it seems. If life is a tomb, then the stone has been rolled away. Death, like Dagon, is powerless in the hands of the supreme God. The loving, embracing, pierced hands of our supreme Savior, Jesus Christ. So 1 Samuel 5 is an Easter story after all. And your life is an Easter story too. Life is stronger than death and love is stronger than sin every time. In Christ, your life may not be safe, but it is secure in the hands of God. The enemy has been defeated. Death and sin and pride are lying in a heap of rubble in the doorway. Make sure you step over them on your way to God's presence. Nothing can stop our God from being with his people. No other idol, no other person. Not even the tomb can stop our Savior from delivering life and love to us weary slaves. Even though they're pierced, his hands are too strong. Nothing can stop him or slow him down on his mission to return his life and love to us. Now that's an Easter story. We're going to sing Stronger. Now that we know how strong the hands of God are, how strong the pierced hands of Jesus are, so strong that he defeats even death itself. We have no enemies that cannot be conquered by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking human enemies. Humans are not our enemies. Humans are our neighbors to be loved. I'm talking about sin, pride, and death and suffering. They've been conquered. They've been defeated by the strength of our God, by the strength of his hands. So let's sing stronger.
God, you are stronger. Jesus, we see your strength and how you conquered death. It looked like you had lost. It looked like death had made you his footstool, but we know that there's so much more to that story. We know that you came back, you rose up, you conquered and defeated it. As Dagon was conquered, as Pharaoh was conquered, you conquer the oppressive enemies of your people. And nothing is more oppressive than death and suffering. And you conquered it, Jesus. We give you praise this Easter Sunday as the conquering God who is stronger than any of our enemies. We praise you and we thank you for the strength that you share with us. Amen. One more thing. I got an email a couple weeks ago from Mary Wildman, our friend Mary Wildman. She sent me a video that she wanted to share with all of you. A video, um, it's an Elvis Presley song talking about the hands of God, how strong and loving they are. And it really beautifully summarizes everything we've said here. So I'm going to post that on Facebook. You can check it out or you can Google, look it up on YouTube. Um, Elvis Presley, uh, the hands of God. Uh, it's really, It's really nice. So victorious people, Go in victory. Know that there is no enemy that can stand before you. There is no suffering. There is no sin. There is no death that keeps you in its chains because of Jesus' resurrection. Love you. Talk to you again. Bye. Death, like Dagon, is powerless in the hands, the loving, embracing, pierced hands of our Supreme Savior, Jesus Christ. giving you guys some space.